Let's pray together. Father, so much depends upon us rightly understanding the passage that's before us. Heaven and hell depend on it. Our relationships with one another depend on it. Lord, marriages and um, parents and children and friends in so many ways, if we don't get this right, we will, we will not be able to love each other. And so I pray that you would not only enable us to do that as we, as we understand the passage before us, but also, Lord, I pray that you would cause us to be rightly related to you, cause us to think rightly about you and your righteousness. Lord, we pray that you do this by the Spirit in the name of Jesus, for your glory, for our joy. Amen. Perhaps you've uh, seen the movie or watched the musical or maybe even read the book, but uh, Victor Hugo's novel, uh, Les Mis, is famous in our culture. And if you don't know the story, uh, the, the main character is a guy named Jean Valjean who had a... Um, uh, a sister who had a young child, and because uh, the, the, there was a famine and, and, and there wasn't work, Jean Valjean Jean stole some bread to feed his sister and the young child. And he was caught, and he was imprisoned, and it was a, a, a very long sentence that was given to him, and partway through that sentence, he tried to flee. He tried to break jail, and then his sentence was increased, and he wound up in prison for 19 years. And then when he got out of prison, he was given a, a paper that marked him as a convict. And because he was marked as a convict, he couldn't get work. And so he jumped parole. He broke parole. And in the process of, of stealing uh, uh, from a priest, from a Catholic priest, that priest showed him the grace of the gospel. He forgave him. He mercied him, and he transformed his life. And Jean Valjean, with this new freedom that was given to him because the priest, uh, Jean Valjean was in the act of stealing from him. He was caught again, and the priest uh, acted as though he had given the things that Jean Valjean had stolen. And, and that experience of gospel-like love uh, transformed Jean Valjean's life, and he became a man who was a hardworking, um, servant-hearted others benefiting, prosperous uh, merchant. He eventually became the, the mayor of the town. He, was, he became such a transformed and good man. And as you read this story or watch it enacted in, on the television, in, in the movie, or, or on the play, you, you think to yourself, who could hate Jean Valjean? And the answer's right there in the story for you. Because Javert, Inspector Javert, can hate Jean Valjean. And the reason Javert hates Jean Valjean is because Valjean broke the law. He jumped parole. He is guilty. And for that reason, he is hated. Absolutely. Now, I want you to think for, with me for a moment about Javert. Because what Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 9, verses 
30 through into chapter 10, verse, verse 4. If, you, if you've got a Bible with you, there, if you don't have one, there's one in the pew. I'd encourage you to grab that. If you have one with you, I'd encourage you to open to Romans chapter 9. We're going to look at uh, Romans 9, 30 through chapter 10, verse 4. And what Paul is talking about here is really encapsulated in the character of Inspector Javert. And, and I want to read to you some, some, some sort of an analysis of Javert that draws upon things that, that Victor Hugo, the author of this story, said about him. Javert's misguided and self-destructive pursuit of justice. That's what he's after. He wants justice. He wants righteousness. He wants holiness. But it's misguided and it's self-destructive. It's more tragic than it is villainous. Um, um, it's, it's, Hugo wrote of him that he's a compound of, he's, he's, he combines respect for authority and hatred of rebellion. And he made these, these characteristics, respect for authority and hatred of rebellion, he made them almost evil by his exaggeration of them. Do you hear that? You can be, it, and it's possible, if you know the story, you know Javert is, he's a bad guy. You don't sympathize with him. Respect for authority and hatred of rebellion can become evil. His life, now, Javert is kind of like a Pharisee. He's kind of like the Jews who rejected Jesus. And if Christians don't embrace righteousness that is by faith alone, if we don't understand the grace of God and the gospel, this is what we can become like, like Inspector Javert. Listen to this. He's without vices. His life is one of privations, isolation, self-denial, and chastity, never any amusement. He's a legalist, and, and, and he's been described as one of the most tragic legalists in Western literature, the consummate legalist. He becomes, a, he becomes a police officer, Javert does, because of an irrepressible hatred for that bohemian race to which he belongs. In other words, he doesn't love people. Did you hear that? He hates the bohemian race to which he, he's, a, he's a human being. He hates human beings, and he wants to enforce the law. He also has this personal foundation of rectitude, order, and honesty. And Victor Hugo wrote of him, he would have arrested his own father if he escaped from prison. He would have turned his own mother in for breaking parole. And so there's no question that when Valjean has done these things, he's certainly going after him. Well, as the story unfolds, and I'm sorry, but if you, if you don't know the story, you're about to get a spoiler. As the story unfolds, um, Inspector Javert falls into the hands of Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean is in a place where it is, it is, it is given to him to execute Inspector Javert. Uh, what, what's happened is um, Valjean is trying to protect the life of his adopted daughter's uh, boyfriend. So his adopted daughter has fallen in love with this guy named Marius, 
And, Valge- and Marius is like this young, idealistic student who's joined the barricades in Paris. They're rebelling against the government. And Valjean is trying to protect Marius, so he goes to the barricades. Meanwhile, Inspector Javert has also come to the barricades because he wants to um, uh, take care of these little schoolboys and stamp out their rebellion. Well, they, they discover that he's a police officer, and they send him off to be executed, and they give Valjean the gun to do it. And Valjean takes Inspector Javert around the corner, and instead of killing him, he cuts his bonds, and he fires a shot into the air, and he tells Javert to run. And then he lies. He lies. He tells a lie. See, he's evil. No, Valjean's a good guy. Valjean, he does, he comes back to those guys, and he says, I killed him. I killed him. Lie. No, that's not how you're supposed to respond. He did a good thing. You see what Victor Hugo is doing to you? Victor Hugo is showing you somebody can do something that's morally right, even as they do something that's not exactly truthful. Life is complicated. This is is why this is great literature, because it's introducing these kinds of contradictions. This is the kind of thing we find ourselves in in life. Well, he gives Javert his life, he also gives Javert his address. Because what, what, what Valjean is now feeling is he, he's, he's at a place where he's like, look, you can have me. You can arrest me. Just let me finish protecting these lives. Here's my address. You can come arrest me when all this is over. And, and, and sure enough, Javert is there. When, when Valjean gets back to uh, his home, he's, he's there and and. He meets Javert, and, and this time he has Marius, and Marius is, is wounded, and he asks Javert, can I just get this boy to safety? And Javert agrees to that, and then they get, they get to uh, Valjean's home, and this is what Javert realizes. He realizes at last, listen, listen to this, the image he had carried through the years of Valjean as a brutal ex-convict, he realizes that that man, the brutal ex-convict, is also a man of kindness and generosity and goodness. And that's what a human being is. You're going to have to deal with that. Human beings are bundles of contradictions. You can have people who, are, who, who do horrible things who are also amazingly loving and generous. That's what, that's what Victor Hugo is trying to force into our consciousness as we experience his story. And then Javert realizes that he cannot be justified. That's what, that's what Javert is after. Javert wants to be justified. He can't be justified either in letting Valjean go because he's guilty. He jumped parole. He can't be justified if he lets him go but he can't be justified in arresting him either. Either way he goes, he's going to do something that is morally wrong. Javert is faced with a situation where he cannot act lawfully without acting immorally. And he cannot act immorally unless he acts lawfully. It's it's a conundrum. He's horrified by this and he realizes he can't deals with it, deal with it. And, and here's, the, here's the crucial thing. Inspector Javert does not know the gospel. 
He does not know the righteousness of God. He does not know the, the by faith gift of righteousness that God's, God gives to people. And he cannot rest in this absolute standard of God's righteousness. And so he goes and he takes care of the contradiction by killing himself. He drowns himself in the river because he can't deal with this. Well, I don't want anyone here to drown themselves in the river. So uh, I, we've, we've got to get to where we can deal with this, and the passage before us is going to enable us to deal with this kind of thing. The passage before us in Romans 9, chapter, 30, chapter 9, verse 30 through 10, 4, is going to address these things for us. So I would encourage you to look with me here. And what we're going to see here is it, two sections. In verse 30, this is what we're going to see. The law lacking Gentiles, the Gentiles who do not have the law, the law lacking Gentiles are going to be righteous by faith. And then in 931 through the end of this passage, 10:4, we're going to see that the law having Israelites, the Israelites have the law, they're unrighteous by works. That's what we're going to see. So we got two ways before us, the by faith way and the by works way. Now, before we dive into this passage, let me just, let me just back up and, and rehearse where we've been and, and kind of where we are in the flow of Paul's thought. So at the end of chapter 8, you have this famous passage where Paul is celebrating the fact that there is nothing in heaven or on earth that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. There is nothing that can make it where someone who has experienced God's love in Christ can be cut off from God. And, and, and Paul's audience is going to have this question that Paul anticipates that, that basically amounts to, well, what about the Jews? God set his love on the Jews, and they've now rejected the Messiah. They're cut off from God. What about them, Paul? And so Paul starts in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 9, and he insists that he feels an evangelistic concern for the Jews to be saved. He, he speaks there in verse 2 that he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart for them. And then in chapter 9, verse 6, he says, it's not as though the word of God has failed. God's promises to the Jews are not the problem. They've not fallen down. And then Paul begins to explain the doctrine of election. This idea that God chooses to save some people. And, and, and the idea is everybody is condemned before God. And God sovereignly, freely decides. I'm, I'm going to save a remnant for myself. And so Paul begins in in verses 7 through 9, to talk about the way that God saved Isaac and he didn't save Ishmael. And then in verses 10 through 13, uh, Paul discusses the way that God saved Jacob and he didn't save Esau, even though they were twins. And God made this choice before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, without respect to what they would do. So it's not on the basis of works. It's on the basis of the God who calls. And then that kind of teaching always prompts the question, well, how is that fair? How is that fair? And that's what Paul takes up in 9, 14 through 18. Is there injustice with God? Is this wrong of God for him to do this? And Paul explains, no, God doesn't owe mercy to anyone. And God has freely chosen to show mercy to those whom he saves. And then there's another question this always provokes. Well, if this is the way it is, why am I held responsible for my sin? And Paul takes that question up beginning in verse 19. And he, and he first says... Uh, you're not in position to question God. And then he begins to offer an explanation, which is that God decided that he wanted to show power and justice by, by 
punishing some for their sin. And he wanted to do this to highlight his mercy by mercifully forgiving people who didn't deserve to be forgiven. And that's what he explains in verses 22 and 23. And then at the end of, uh, in, in the following verses, verses 24 through 29, the end of the section that we looked at last week, Paul basically says, um, the Gentiles are being shown mercy and they're being saved the same way that the Jews were shown mercy and got saved, which is saying nobody earned salvation. And that's, that brings us to this in chapter 9, verse 30. And um, as we begin this, I, I, I just need to say one more com- make one more comment here about the logical flow of thought as we begin to look at this. Paul has been explaining why Israel is lost. And to this point, the explanation has been God only chose to save a remnant within Israel. Not 9-6, he says, after he says, it's not as though the word of God has failed, for, all not, for not all are who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So Paul is saying there's only this, this remnant within Israel that God ever intended to save. And now what he's going to say is um, the logical corollary, in other words, the complement, the thing that goes along with the idea that God chooses some, is the idea that God gives these people who he chooses the gift of faith. The, the, the Bible, the New Testament, regularly speaks of faith as a gift. Ephesians 2.8. It is by grace you have been saved. And, 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 and this not of works, it is the gift of God through faith. Uh, uh, sorry, I left the through faith out. The through faith comes in before the word gift. The gift. Faith is a gift of God. Philippians chapter 1 verse 29. Paul says to the Philippians... It has been granted to you not only to believe, but also to suffer. So the the believing is granted. And so so those whom God chooses to save, he also gives to them the gift of faith. And and that comes with the whole new birth, which we don't cause ourselves to experience. So so these ideas go together, that God chooses to make some people experience a new birth and to give them the gift of faith. God chooses to do that. And I think this explains why Paul moves from this discussion of election at the beginning of Romans 9 into this discussion of those who are righteous by faith as opposed to those who seek to be righteous by works. So let's look together at Romans chapter 9, verse 30. Paul writes here, what shall we say then? And this is in response to the idea that the Gentiles got mercy the same way the Jews got mercy. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is, a righteousness that is by faith? Now he's going to go on to talk about how, in in verse 31, Israel pursued that righteousness, but they didn't attain it because they pursued it by works. But let's, let's just sit here for a moment in verse 30 and have Paul teach us about how the Gentiles who did not pursue this righteousness, they have attained it. I think that um, Paul has in mind, probably, uh, teachings of Jesus like the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. Do you remember that parable? Um, It's a story of a guy that he's got a field that needs to be worked, and um, he, he needs to hire some people to work that field. And so he, at the beginning of the day, he gets some workers and he agrees with them on a wage that they're going to be paid if they work all day for him. 
And the, and the day proceeds, and these people are out there laboring away. They're sweating in the sun. They're uh, pouring themselves out trying to earn this money. And near the end of the day, the, the, the guy that owns the field, he sees that there are some people not working, and he sees that there's some work that, be, that could be done. So he gets these guys, and he says, hey, listen, the day's all, almost over, but go work for me, and I'll pay you what you, what you earn. And so they do. And the end of the day comes, and this last group that only worked a short amount of time, they come to the owner, and he pays them what he had agreed to pay those guys at the beginning of the day. In response to which, these guys are like, hey, we're going to get paid more now, right? And they're not. And they're offended. Because these people only worked a little while, and they got paid the same amount as we. We worked all day long. That's, the, that's what's going on right here. The Gentiles, who didn't pursue righteousness... They weren't bothered by the Mosaic law. They didn't have a temple. They didn't make any sacrifices. And they got righteous? They, they attained righteousness? This is offensive to the Jews. How can, how can these Gentiles be justified? They haven't been circumcised. They haven't been to Torah school. They didn't have to learn Hebrew. How can they get justified? How is this fair? Well... Look at what it says there. They've attained a righteousness that is by faith. In other words, this is Paul's talking about what he was talking about back in Romans 4. Remember? Remember when he, when he was talking about how Abraham, who was not himself righteous, he got reckoned righteous. God considers him righteous. Why? Because Abraham believed. This is what happens with these Gentiles. So... We're going to get more insight into this as we continue through the passage. Let me just give you an application here. If you want to be righteous, there's only one way you're going to be righteous. There's only one way you're going to be righteous, and that is by faith. If you think you're going to be righteous by your works, if you think that you're going to attain a standard of righteousness by your deeds, you don't understand what righteousness is. But Paul is now going to start talking about these people who didn't understand what righteousness is. The, the Jewish people, Israel, verse, verse 31. He says, Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, they did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. You know what Paul is saying here? He's saying that the people of Israel missed the whole point of the law. They totally and completely whiffed. They, they were to believe what the Bible said so that they could dwell with God. That, that's the whole idea of, of the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant, the idea is the people are sinful, but God is going to take up residence within them in the tabernacle, and then later once they get the temple built in the temple. And the whole idea is you have to believe that he's in there and that he's holy. And you have to believe that if I come into contact with him in my sinful state, his holiness is going to break out against me and kill me. And so what I have to do is I have to avoid sin. And if I, if I do sin or if I become unclean through contact with the consequences of sin, which is death, then I need to offer sacrifices to make it where I'm clean, to make it where his holiness is not threatening me. So you have to believe he's in there, in the Holy of Holies. And then you have to believe these words that Moses has said to you. 
that this is actually going to do it. It's actually going to make me clean if I kill this animal and pour out the blood on the altar. It's actually going to work. And, and belief is the only thing that's going to make it where you're willing to take a very expensive animal and go kill it and then burn the whole thing on the altar. Belief is the only thing that's going to motivate you to do that. Belief is the only thing that's going to motivate you if you come into contact with uncleanness of some kind and the law regulates that you have to go outside the camp for seven days. Well, that's not going to be a pleasant, comfortable experience. You're only going to do that if you believe the word. And they totally missed it. They thought this is all about a standard of righteousness for us. This is all about a set of rules that if we keep them, we'll be righteous. And they totally missed that the, the rules and the laws were about God and about them being near God and able to remain in his presence. Instead of understanding that this was about God, they thought they were being given an ancient self-help manual. They thought the law was a righteousness maker. We're going to make ourselves righteous. No, that's not the point. The point is for you to dwell with God. God wanted to give them a gift himself. They wanted to earn the gift. You, you, ever, you ever been in that kind of experience? Somebody wants to give you something and you think, oh, let me pay you for this. No, you don't understand. It's not about payment. I'm doing this because I love you. Last week I talk about, talked about our dog and people didn't like it. <laughs> people didn't like what I said about the dog. I'm going to say, I'm going to try it again. Okay. Something about the dog. That dog cannot earn my favor. That dog cannot, he cannot uh, intrigue my intelligence through his conversation. He cannot obey to a, in, in such a, no, if, if that dog's going to be in my favor, I have to bestow my favor on that dog. I have to decide I'm going to love that dog. I'm going to make sacrifices for that dog. I'm going to care for that dog. I'm gonna, this, is, this has to come out of me. And if he thinks he's earned it, he is totally and completely mistaken because he does not even begin to intrigue me with his conversation. Boof, boof. No, that's not, that's not how it works. It's the same way with us and God. We're never going to earn his favor. We are never going to do something that surprises him. We're never going to give him a new thought. We can only be in his favor if he decides to bestow his favor upon us. And this is what he did for Israel. And they thought, oh, we got to earn his favor. They, they just completely and totally missed it. Look at verse 31. Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, it would lead to a place where they were right with God. But they did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Verse 32. Because they did not pursue it by faith. They, didn't, they weren't believing they pursued it as if it were based on works. They thought it was about what they did. And then in addition to this, here's another component of this in verse 32 at the end. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. And so what Paul is now going to introduce is this idea that, that all through the Old Testament, God starts giving these little hints that he's going to send Jesus and, and what Paul is talking about here is the way that when Jesus came, they stumbled over him. They didn't like him. They thought he wasn't good enough. I asked that question a minute ago. Who could hate Jean Valjean? Who could hate Jesus? Well, the Pharisees could, couldn't they? And the legalists can. 
Jesus is the stumbling block. Um, here, here Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 28, the passage that was read earlier in the, in the, in the, in the worship service. And, you know, I've actually been in um, academic presentations at the Evangelical Theological so no, Society, no less, where people have tried to argue, one guy in particular tried to argue, well, actually, Isaiah 28 is not about Jesus. Uh, sorry, doctor, I won't say his name. I don't care where your PhD is from. I don't care that you have a prestigious post at Wheaton College. If the Apostle Paul says it's about Jesus, it's about Jesus, okay? And, and then if we examine the context, we see that, lo and behold, there are aspects of the context of Isaiah 28 that this guy is just not paying attention to at all. So in the context of Isaiah 28, um, Isaiah is denouncing the leadership of Israel. And then he's talking about this stone that he's going to set in Zion that's going to be a stumbling stone. Well, Zion, all across Isaiah, is all about David. It's about the future king from David. So you're telling me that in this passage where he's denouncing the corrupt leaders who are getting themselves drunk and exploiting the people, and then he starts talking about this stone that he's going to put in Zion, he's not talking about the future king from David's line? I'm sorry, not only have you rejected the authority of the Apostle Paul, you're also a terrible reader. Sorry for that little digression. Paul says here that they've stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, verse 33, Behold, I am laying in Zion, here he's quoting Isaiah 28, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him, that's the stone, Jesus, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And what's happened is the people of Israel, they've stumbled over him. And Paul is saying the Gentiles have believed in him, and the Gentiles are not going to be put to shame. Salvation only comes by trusting him. Look at verse 33 there. Whoever believes in him. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, don't, don't be troubled by this stuff that I've talked about, election and the gift of faith. You just need to think about this. Do I find Jesus to be trustworthy? I would encourage you to just open the New Testament and start reading the Gospels. Start reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and you just keep asking yourself the question, do I think this guy is trustworthy? Is this guy worthy of my confidence? And I think what has happened to us will happen to you. You'll find there's nobody more compelling than him. There's nobody that, that more deserves my trust than Jesus. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, we want you to trust Jesus. And that's what Paul goes on to say. Look at 10.1. He says, brothers, and it's kind of like he's back to this evangelistic burden that he feels for the Jewish people that he had talked about in 9.1 through 5. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Application point? Let me encourage you to develop emotionally a heart's desire that results in prayer to God for lost people that you know and love. When we were in Romans 9, 1 to 5, we talked about how probably the, the kinsmen according to the flesh are Paul's, Paul's aunts and uncles and cousins and maybe his mom and his dad and maybe his nieces and nephews and the people that, these people that are his sphere of life. And his heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. This is what we want to feel. We want to feel what Paul feels. So let me urge you to cultivate that. And then he goes on in verse 2. 
He says, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Their zeal for God has them trying so hard to keep the law, but they're not doing it according to knowledge. They're not doing it informed by the teaching of the gospel. He explains in verse 3, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. There it is. If you think you can establish your own righteousness, you are ignorant of the righteousness of God. If you think that the people in this church can establish their own righteousness, you don't understand the righteousness of God. If you try to hold other Christians to an absolute standard of perfection and holiness, you're only going to drive yourself and them crazy. You don't understand the righteousness of... That standard cannot be reached by a human being. Being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So there's several errors here. One, they don't see how holy God is. Two, they are not submitted to the holiness of God. And then third, they've set themselves up as the standard, seeking to establish their own righteousness. Tim Keller gives a series in this book, Center Church. He gives a series of of sort of um, comparisons and contrasts between the way that a legalist or a moralist and a relativist is going to act as opposed to somebody that embraces the gospel. And I'm going to I'm going to read you several of these. He, he first, he gives a series of, of, of things uh, comparing and con- contrasting these things. Discouragement and de- depression is the first category. The moralist says to somebody that's discouraged or depressed, depressed you're breaking the rules. That's what the legalist says. You're breaking the rules. You need to repent. The relativist, on the other hand, says, just love and accept yourselves. There there are no rules. Don't worry about it. The gospel, this is, uh, now I'm I'm reading from Tim Keller, from Tim Keller. If you think this is oversimplified, you can take it up with him, okay? The gospel will lead us to examine ourselves and say, now, sorry, I started in the middle of a sentence. Let me go back and start at the beginning of the sentence. He says, assuming the depression has no physiological base, The gospel will lead us to examine ourselves and say, something in my life has become more important than God, a pseudo-savior, a form of works righteousness. And the gospel will lead us to embrace repentance and not merely set our will against superficialities. And then then he talks about love and relationships. The moralist is going to be so traumatized by criticism. The relativist is going to say, well, relationships, this is just about mutual benefit and there really aren't standards and so forth. The gospel leads us to do neither, Keller writes. He says, we selflessly sacrifice and commit, but not out of a need to convince ourselves or others that we are acceptable. We can love a person enough to confront, yet stay with the person even when it does not benefit us. Then he talks about sexuality. And this is what he says about, about human sexuality. The moralist... I'm I'm quoting here, the moralist tends to see sex as dirty or at least as a dangerous impulse that leads constantly to sin. The relativist sees sex as merely a biological and physical appetite. The gospel shows us that sexuality is supposed to reflect the self-giving of Christ. He gave himself completely, without conditions, 
Consequently, we are not to seek intimacy while holding back the rest of ourselves. If we give ourselves sexually, we are also to give ourselves legally, socially, personally. Sex is to be shared only in a total commitment, total, totally committed, permanent relationship of marriage. And he goes on to talk about the way this affects our families, it affects race and culture, it affects witnessing, it affects our approach to human authority, guilt and self-image, and over and over again, the gospel has this transforming power. If we're going to have good relationships, it's going to be because of the gospel. Keller says this, most of our problems in life come from a lack of proper orientation to the gospel. Pathologies in the church and sinful patterns in our individual lives ultimately stem from a failure to think through the deep implications of the gospel. He says, if we are saved by grace alone, this salvation is a constant source of amazed delight. Nothing is mundane or matter-of-fact about our lives. It's a miracle we are Christians. And the gospel, which creates bold humility, should give us a far deeper sense of humor and joy. So the law-lacking Gentiles are righteous by faith. The law-having Israelites are unrighteous by works. And look at how Paul concludes this in verse 4. He says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You know, Deuteronomy 6 exhorts us, fathers particularly, to, um, uh, one way to translate, it says teach the scriptures diligently to your children. One way to translate it would be repeat the scriptures constantly to your children and then to talk about them. This is an easy verse to memorize. It's really short. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And then you can take that law and just repeat it over and over and then you can start talking about it. And, and, and I think we ought to ask questions like, what does the word end mean here? What does the word end mean here? Christ is the end of the law. I think it has uh, several layers of meaning. One, one layer of meaning, I think, goes like this. Uh, if, 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 let's say, Jesus were to walk by as Moses is preaching Deuteronomy, and, and, and if the people of Israel were to be able to interact with Jesus, I think Moses could say to them, this is what I'm talking about. I want you to live like this. This is what life looks like in obedience to the law. So Christ is the end of the law in the sense that he's what the law is trying to bring about in the people of Israel. God wanted them to live like Jesus lives, fully committed to God, fully ready to lay down his life for others. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's Jesus. He's the embodiment of life according to the law. This is what keeping the commandments looks like. Also, if, uh, if Moses were to say, all right, look, I'm making all these promises about this future redeemer. And then if he had a timeline, which he didn't have a timeline, but if he had a timeline and he's back there and you know, 1446 B.C., and he could see how many years it was going to be until, until probably in 4 or 6 B.C., somewhere through there, when Jesus was born. And, and if he could have said, the guy, this guy that I'm promising, this future redeemer, he's going to be born then. 
That's another sense in which Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. He's the one promised all through the law. He lives out the law. He's the one whom the law promises. And also, and I think Moses would affirm this. Also, I think Moses would say something like, look, I'm giving you this covenant, but you're going to break this covenant. And we've talked about this. Moses regularly is telling Israel about how they're going to break the covenant. You're going to break this covenant, and God's going to do away with this covenant, and he's going to make for you a new covenant. And when he does this, the covenant that I'm giving you is going to be nullified. And when Christ comes, that's when that's going to happen. So Christ is the end of the law in the sense that he's the termination of the time period in which the law is, is, is the, the set of rules between God and man. Once he comes, the old covenant expires. It's over. So Jesus, he fully and completely lives it out. He's the one promised, and he's the one who brings it to the end. He, he's the fulfillment of the law. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Who could hate Jesus? The Pharisees did. Self-righteous people do. They may have an idea of Jesus that they like, but the minute that Jesus does something they don't like, they start hating him. Legalists hate Jesus. Do you know why? Because Jesus forgives sinners and legalists don't. So legalists may have themselves convinced that they like Jesus. They don't like him. Because Jesus welcomes sinners. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. It, you know, in some ways, it's almost... It's all, you, you could look at this passage and you could think to yourself, given where the Jewish people were and, and, and the way that they responded to Jesus, it's almost like God was on a mission to offend them. He's going to send them this Savior, Jesus, who's going to be so completely offensive to them. I mean, you know, they said about John the Baptist, he has a, he, Jesus said, he came neither eating nor drinking, and they said, he has a demon. And then the Son of Man comes eating and drinking, and they say, a wine-bibber and a glutton. They're so offended by Jesus. And then they for, he forgives sinners. He, he welcomes these, these unclean, filthy Gentiles into his kingdom. It's like God's on a mission to say to the legalist, the person who is self-satisfied, self-righteous, I got the standard and everybody got to live up to my standard. And God is saying, no, we're not going to have it that way. In fact, I'm going to take all your sensibilities and I'm going to make my truth as offensive to you as it can possibly be. So this is scandalous grace, but if we're Christians, we won't be scandalized by it. If we're Christians, we'll love it. We don't want to be those who hate Jesus. We want to be those whose lives are surprised with joy and wonder. And we want to be the kind of place... Keller had this other great quote, and I closed... No, here it is. Listen to this. A church that's marked by this gospel, Keller writes, people will find in it an attractive, electrifying balance of moral conviction and compassion. That's what we want. An electrifying balance of moral conviction and compassion. Let's pray. Lord, only you could do this. 
only you could make a bunch of sinners into a place that people are drawn to because of the way we love one another, a place that's an electrifying balance of moral conviction and compassion. Only you could bring this about in us, Lord. And so we look to you alone. We cast ourselves completely upon you, and we pray that you would transform us into the image of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Lord, we ask that you'd do it. We pray that you'd help us to love each other, to cheer each other on, to encourage each other. Lord, keep us from a legalistic, ruler approach to Christianity, constantly trying to measure whether other people are keeping everything where it needs to be. Lord, make us people who love. Make us like Christ. We love you, and we want to live for your glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.